Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. David Schenk talked with hundreds of healthcare workers and givers and with patients and other families in researching his latest book, Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. Scott Neely, a minister of the Unitarian Universalist Church, joined Mr. Schenk in preparing the book, which is published by Oxford University Press. And it is with great pleasure that I welcome David Schenk to our show now. Hello. Great to be here, Leonard. Thanks for the invitation. The word burnout is in your title. Why do you say that using words like burnout and moral distress are problematic when we're describing the experiences of healthcare professionals and family caregivers? The words have become judgmental. Uh, they suggest that an individual has failed. So if someone says, David is burned out, it suggests that I don't have the gumption to keep going, that I got too close to my patients. Uh, moral distress is, again, something that suggests that you aren't uh, tough enough, you aren't the right person uh, in the field. And so I've been very concerned that they are uh, judgmental. The useful thing about them is that they point to the deep stress that many of our healthcare professionals feel. But part of this stress is from the systems in which they operate. They can't be blamed for those system failures. But sometimes we use these words to blame individuals when actually there are structural problems uh, that are in the way. Isn't the root of burnout depletion when the person's inner resources have eroded? I like to use the term depletion as a way to describe the process that leads up to what I call burnout, which is the point at which you simply can't go to work. You simply can't go on. But there's a long lead up time of progressive exhaustion, frustration, uh, difficulty with colleagues, difficulty with patients. And so I wanted a word that would describe that, but make room for people to see that there might be possibilities for turning around and healing. Sometimes burnout also sounds final. You know, mm -hmm. Leonard is burned out. Okay. But, that, but depletion is not inevitable. Burnout is. Dep depletion is inevitable. Is inevitable, Everybody, but burnout is not. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Is the challenge medical professionals and caregivers face not avoiding them, but meeting them directly? If we avoid them, like so many things in life, uh, they come around and bite us. The other thing is, if we avoid them, we avoid the growth and the insight that will allow us to have greater capacity to care, greater capacity to heal. And these capacities are things that we need, given the challenge of the systems uh, in which we operate. So ignoring those things leads to big trouble later, but it also uh, prevents you from reaching into potential growth and opportunities for growth. Aren't the terms burnout and moral distress often used judgmentally as if those trying to heal others have failed themselves, their colleagues, and their patients? Yes, and they're often, uh, they can be weaponized against colleagues that you don't care for. 
or colleagues that you think are not doing a good job with their patients. And so, you know, David's getting a little crispy around the edges, meaning on his way to burnout. That's why he's so-and-so and so-and-so. So I don't think we can throw the words away. They are too much in the cultural stream. They're in the media. They're in hospital culture. But what I want to suggest is we add some more terms to make some more subtle distinctions. So depletion, the process of, I mean, caregiving is hard work, uh, whether you're giving care in the home or in the hospital. And so you can expect at certain times in your career or in your life that uh, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to have outrun the skills that you have. You're going to need a period of replenishing so that you can keep going, offer more to others, find more satisfaction for yourself. The other term that I have introduced and is moral anguish. Because sometimes moral distress uh, seems a little mild, you know, so-and-so was distressed, blah, blah. And I use that really to talk about the conflicts uh, that caregivers often feel between being told to do this for a patient or a family member uh, by a doctor, let's say, but feeling that that's the wrong thing. So moral distress kind of describes that trap. But then I've introduced this term moral anguish to talk about what happens when moral distress is internalized, what happens when the conflict and the emotional distress, the emotion itself is internalized. You can't let it go even when you're away from, from the setting. So we have you're, to you're use it. You're blaming oneself. Yeah, yes. Yes. Shame, blame guilt. How can we recognize the early signs? The earliest signs tend to be physical. That is, uh, we aren't sleeping well. Uh, we sleep, but we're not rested when we get up. Uh, we may, you know, all of us have something that, as we get old, something that aches when we're under stress. So, you know, my right shoulder aches. Mm -hmm. If I'm not paying enough attention, then my shoulder is saying, David, wake up, you know, what's going on? So I think that's part of it. An important part of it is looking at the people around you. Now, sometimes you forget this as you're getting depleted, but you will get clues from people around you. They will be looking at you with concern, sometimes frustration, sometimes uh, disappointment. And your patients will too. And so your social interactions begin to get more difficult. The other thing is it's important to have friends, to have colleagues, to have a partner, uh, because sometimes it's hard to notice uh, yourself. But, you know, someone to say gently, uh, okay, David, time to, time to slow down. Or what is it that's really, that's really bothering you? But isn't there also the danger of overload? It's, it's not always so easy to ask for help. There's enormous danger of overload. Uh, we certainly saw this and the uh, horrific consequences of that uh, 
during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and we find in many places, because again of the economic constraints and institutional structures of hospitals, we find overload gradually being built into the workday. So for example, you might have an intensive care unit nurse <clears throat> who typically has two patients to take care of. She has a little nursing stool station where she can look in a window and see both these patients. But then one day there's a shortage and she's asked to pick up one more patient just down or pick up two more patients. And this becomes an impossible load. It's not safe for the patient. It's not safe for the nurse. But these kinds of shortages in order to save money on personnel uh, are becoming more the norm. If you talk to a hospital administrator, they will tell you that the single biggest expense in the hospital, not surprisingly, is personnel, and the greatest percentage of that is nursing. But when the pandemic hit, wasn't there also a shortage of equipment? There were system failures of all kinds, right? There were supply line failures. There was very basic equipment that was missing, like uh, personal protective gear, you know, gowns, masks, gloves. You're dealing with um, sickness that you don't know how it's transmitted. You don't know, you have people dying all around you and yet you can't um, protect yourself and you can't protect your family. But in addition to that, there were shortage of ventilators, as we recall, um, sort of warfare between uh, Governor Cuomo and uh, the then president about who would get the ventilators and where they would come from. Uh, there was a question about uh, medications. And again, this points to, I mean, certainly it was a crisis during the pandemic, but what it also points to is what the supply lines were like before the pandemic started. So if I'm running a hospital, I don't want to have lots of um, <clears throat> backlog. I don't want to have surplus storage in my areas because I got a lot of money tied up in that. So I keep just enough to manage the normal thing. And then all of a sudden something like COVID comes in. I don't have enough at hand. I go to ask for it guess what? Everybody else has been running on thin inventory. Everybody else is going to that source. And then, you know, as you remember, sometimes even the transportation lines were broken or the um, original source places. And then one more thing, Leonard, that happened, as you also probably remember, is that we discovered that there was only one supplier for uh, certain kinds of tubes, certain kind of plastic tubing, uh, just through the current economic structure. Or the one supplier is in China, uh, where they got their own problems with COVID. So it pointed to problems in the hospital, and it also pointed to larger structural problems in our healthcare system. And then medication became a controversial issue and remains one. Some people are supported, some, uh, I guess most do, but not all. And uh, the ones who don't judge the ones who do as being wrongheaded. Mm -hmm. 
Right now, mm-hmm. that's uh, come up again during this latest uh, presidential race. Right, right. Well, you know, the the question about vaccination uh, is just one of the more, it's one of the stranger uh, phenomena that, that I think any of us have seen and the reactions from different groups uh, against it. There was, I mean, I recently went to uh, my mother's funeral and I unfortunately ended up sitting next to my anti-vaxxer nephew and three days later I had COVID. I've had all the boosters. Mm-hmm. I've gone the whole time without getting it. So it remains uh, the whole vaccination questions. And then just very recently, the Paxlovid, which is so helpful with COVID, uh, was being paid for um, by the federal government up until a month or so ago. And then all of a sudden, now you have a medicine that is astonishingly effective, but is now going to be, it's going to add to healthcare inequalities and disparities uh, based on economics. Uh, You point out that the lowest paid medical staff members who tend to be women and people of color, nurses, aides, and maintenance workers are subjected to the most dangerous working conditions with the fewest protections. Do we prepare them for that in any way? Well, if you think about, so you know, most of these in every room, sorry, there is a red bag, every hospital room, uh, and in every exam room in a, you know, in a clinic, there's a red bag or a red box that says biohazard. Uh, your doctor, your nurse puts stuff in it. Uh, if you take a gown off or gloves off, when you leave a hospital room, you put it in that bag. Who is it that takes those bags out of the hospital and into the uh, incinerator or the dumpster. Who is it that cleans the floor around those bags, which surely, you know, you don't get everything in the bag. Um, Oftentimes the nurses aides are called in to uh, clean the beds or change uh, diapers for the patients. In other words, there's a much greater likelihood of direct exposure to uh, harmful and toxic materials. There are, I mean, everybody that works in the hospital has to sit through these little modules, you know, here's what this little symbol means, here's what this means, it's bad for you, this is not so good for you. Uh, I would hardly consider that. I mean, when I go in the hospital room, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to touch or not to touch. So I haven't actually sat in on the education sessions for these, but simply the nature of the job and the exposure and the fact that the attention in the hospital is turned towards doctors, it's turned towards a lesser degree towards nurses. I'm talking with David Schenk about a new book from Oxford University Press called Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. There's a growing body of academic literature on these topics and many memoirs recounting distressing situations and 
wounding traumas. Have certain things remained missing from all of them? What are you hoping to add? This book arose out of workshops with nurses, with residents, young doctors, sometimes with attendings. It arose out of working with medical students and students um, becoming physicians assistants. So the book is not derived from surveys. It's not derived from literature searches or academic approaches. It's really based on an ongoing set of conversations that I've had over the last 25 years with people working in frontline agencies, homeless shelters, food banks, pre-medical clinics, flood relief nonprofits in uh, West Virginia, as well as in academic hospitals and, and with hospice. And so what I want to offer is an invitation out of that experience to people on the front line to enter a conversation with me and to think of it as a way of clarifying their identity as a healthcare provider, as a person who is offering healing. So the book is accessible, it's personal, it's built on conversations with the very kind of people that I that I hope will read it. We had an interesting process, Leonard, with Oxford University Press because uh, it's a leading academic uh, press in the world, but they have an idea of what an Oxford book should look like and what it should sound like and what the grammar and the sentence structure should be. And from the beginning, I said, look, I'm looking for a conversational tone. I'm looking for something that's not a typical Oxford book. They're going to be sentence fragments. They're going to be run-on sentences. I got some idiosyncratic, pretty weird punctuation, but you need to be prepared to accept this because this is part of the way I want to establish a relationship with the reader. And so if you look at some of the other books that are available, and they're excellent books for uh, research and for academics, Uh, Some of them are just uh, forbidding. Um, You know, you pick up a 400-page book on burnout and it's liable to just push you over the edge. We wanted something, this is about 120 pages, we wanted something that was accessible, uh, readable, and that's what we were striving for. You say you engage in hundreds of conversations, debriefings, and interviews with healthcare workers and caregivers, patients, and families. How much do they all have in common? The thing, well, the core thing is they are, the patients are looking for help, right? Mm-hmm. They And they are, in general, I mean, for for our second book, we interviewed 60 patients and asked them all about their relationship with doctors. And one of the things they were looking for is simply recognition that they're a person. Uh, And they were really, their expectations were very low. You know, I mean, I had somebody say to me, you know, Dr. Smith, I can tell he's taken one of those courses on how to relate to your patients. And 
you know, he's really not very good at it yet, mm -hmm. but he's trying. And um, so I think that that's one thing that patients are looking for. But the truth of the matter is, that's also what our healthcare providers are looking for. That is to say, they all want to succeed. They are there to offer care, uh, to see some kind of change. And so there is hope on both sides. There is hope that in the conjunction or the joining together, that something, some new growth, some new wholeness, some balance uh, can come forward. Isn't caregiving innate in most humans? Uh, after all, mothers care for their children, siblings care for each other, and children care for their aging parents. Most, an extraordinary percentage, yes, I think so. And in fact, in some ways, you could, if you wanted to sort of step back to a philosophical plane, you could say that the entire human project is a process of sharing, healing, distress, brokenness, disruption, compassion, and generosity. We're in a constant dance, and human beings are uh, set up for that. But that doesn't mean that in certain moments, the dance doesn't get uh, exhausting or too wild to keep up with. And so uh, if you are caregiving in the home, uh, you may not have the help that you need. You may be in desperate need of a rest and your friend, uh, Mary, who is going to come over and spell you, can't come because one of her children uh, is in trouble. And some you husbands may... are better than others or fathers are better than others. Yes. Yes, exactly. Or some people want to be do a good job and then they're at the bedside and they simply can't stand it. It's either emotionally overwhelming or the smell is bad or uh, the, there are just so many different layers to the struggle and the challenge. Well, I would think it's particularly tough on siblings, especially if you look up to your, your older sibling who's suddenly sick. Mm-hmm. So and how, can, go ahead. It can be tough on siblings when they're caring for a parent as well. Mm -hmm. um, does it, does well, age depend matter here? Obviously, if you're six years old, you can only do certain things. And if you're 12, you can do other kinds of things. And if you're 18, you can do other things again. Or if you've already left the, the family, you can come and do a different group of things. Well, let me give you an example. Again, my um, mother died in January. I'm 71. I have a sister who's 68. I have a brother who is 62, a stepbrother in his mid-50s, and a sister in her early 50s. Now, you would think <laughs> that these five adults, with most of them very capable, would come together. And we did. And yet at the same time, there's the, well, you know, this is how mom likes to make decisions. She likes to do it herself. Well, actually, she seems sort of confused. And I think maybe we should make this decision for her. Oh, no, you can't do that. And then another sibling calls and says, don't you let them operate on her. <laughs> and so what you discover is... 
the different relationships that the children have had with the parent who is ill that you kind of slide over in everyday life. But the dying process, in my experience, puts everything in bold relief. You know, the lights are are turned way up psychically, spiritually, physically. And so there really are a number of kinds of uh, uh, layers and layers of challenges there. And then the longer the illness goes on, the tireder people get. Sometimes the illness becomes more and more painful. It becomes more difficult to be in the presence of the patient. Uh, and it really can be, it is most often a stretch, but hopefully we can learn in that stretch. So caregiving does differ when it involves family as opposed to when it's a job. After yes. all, if it's your job, you're not emotionally involved with the person who is having who is ill. Most people that I know are uh, emotionally involved with the people that they care for, not to the same degree, not to the same kind of complexity, but uh, most nurses and most residents and many of the attending physicians are, uh, they have a stake in the success. And whether it's a, you know, they know the details of the biography of the person in, in bed 15, whose name is John Smith, their sense of responsibility for that person is acute. And so there is an emotional involvement, but it's a different kind. And, you know, there are those people who have virtually no emotional involvement. And I would say that those people are exceedingly depleted on their way to burnout or they've just found a way to numb themselves uh, completely and that's not a good thing for them or their colleagues uh, or their patients. Well we come out of different families. Some families are very caring and very giving and others are not. Right. Is it, right. Isn't that training for this complicated situation? The nature of the families, the different nature? Mm-hmm. If you come out yeah. of a family where everybody is, you know, involved with everybody else, that yeah. th that would make you feel perhaps more responsible when something goes wrong. I think it does sometimes. And then there's the other thing, which is your family is so dysfunctional and so screwed up that you take it upon yourself to uh, fix uh, the world, to fix other families. And... This, this brings us to an important point that is, I think, sure. an unusual feature of the book, which is it's important to understand our woundedness as well as our gifts. So the kind of family that you're talking about where people are supportive and helpful becomes a gift for a doctor, a nurse, a healthcare provider of any kind, uh, an at-home provider. At the same time, a person who maybe was in a challenging home environment. Perhaps it was uh, a setting as strong as sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. A person can come out of that with a view of suffering, a direct bodily 
experience suffering inscribed in the body that allows them, that can allow them to have an empathy and a connection and a perception of what's going on with a patient when a person who hadn't been through that uh, may not. But I think it's important to explore our wounding and understand it because otherwise, if we don't, uh, then it's going to be a vulnerability that takes uh, that takes us down and harms our patients. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You're enjoying my conversation with David Schenk. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. Just go to on, go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give in the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more dollar donation in the name of London Lopate at Lodge. And we thank you very much. And I return now to David Schenk, whose latest book is uh, published by Oxford University Press. It's called, as I said, Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout. And um, your, would you call him your co-author, uh, Scott Neely? His name is smaller on the cover. Let me tell you a little bit about the evolution of the book. And that, I think, will an- answer your question. I had been doing uh, burnout workshops, coaching with executive directors who were burning out for 15 or 20 years. And I had PowerPoints. I had all kinds of other stuff. But I knew I couldn't assemble it myself. So who am I going to get to help me? Scott Neely came to a philosophy class that I taught in 1996. We have been, first of all, it was teacher-student. Then we worked together on some projects. I did some writing projects early in the 2000s where he was an editor and a very aggressive editor. You know, when your students come to look at your written work, they're harder on you than you ever were on them. I watched him develop into an outstanding uh, minister. He's also a painter. That's his painting on the cover of the book. Gorgeous uh, Mm -hmm. orange fire sun thing. And Scott was a person that I wanted to uh, work with to pull this material together. And so we recorded 15 or 16 hours of conversations, which gave us 360 pages of transcripts, uh, which is sort of ridiculous. Uh, And the first thing I did was cut 120 of them so that we could get something manageable. We at first thought it might, the whole book might be a dialogue back and forth between the two of us, but it became quickly apparent that that was gonna be uh, very confusing, who was speaking, and so on. And so we decided that the first two thirds of the book, the five chapters would be in my voice. And then there would be dialogues, the last quarter of the book, really, 
that would be Scott in conversation with me, me in conversation with Scott. So that's the reason for David Shank with Scott Neely. But the thing that needs to be emphasized is every single sentence in that book was reviewed by Scott, uh, benefited from Scott's uh, conversation. I've just been blessed by having this person uh, to work with and to have him in my life. And the other thing I want to say about it is Scott knew enough about my work that we wouldn't have to start at the beginning, but he didn't know this part very well. And I knew that he would push me. He would say, what do you mean by depletion? Why, why do you want to put that next to burnout? At every point he would push. Uh, so I'm it helped fortunate. you clarify your thoughts. Yes. Yes. Well, what role does, uh, do you see spirituality playing in this process? After all, he is a, a minister of the Unitarian Universalist Church. Well, and my graduate degrees are in uh, philosophy and religion, comparative religion, religion and culture. And one of the things that I say in the introduction is that Part of the place this book came from was observations that I made based on my training in comparative religion. So I was watching my colleagues struggle with what in religious texts might be called the dark night of the soul, trying to figure out uh, what the next step would be. Uh, think about Dante and the Divine Comedy. He starts out at the very beginning in the dark wood and he doesn't know where to go and he's threatened by these different beasts uh, and i watched my colleagues try then to grow in different ways that would allow them to move forward and you know at some point it occurred to me <clears throat> these are the saints in the bodhisattvas these are the people who are struggling with traditional elements of the religious path they feel called to do a certain kind of work, to respond to the suffering of the world in the way that religious teachers uh, always have. Religious teachers are often healers, as we know. <clears throat> and so I began to look for these patterns. And in the first chapter, there's kind of a description of the arc of the healer's vocation. <clears throat> and the structure of that is really drawn in part from studies in comparative religion and anthropology about um, people coming into spiritual awareness. So a call into a specific kind of activity, <clears throat> the sense that you want to be a nurse, you want to be a doctor. Secondly, initiation, um, you take tests, you see your first corpse, you deal with your first death you go through all these different training things, and then you become master of a certain set of skills. And then after a while, you discover that there are things in the world out there that you don't have the skills for. And this may be a period of depletion. You do some training, you break through that barrier, and you have greater capacity at the end of it. So one way that there is spirituality involved is this undergirding idea and organization for the whole book. The second thing is the recognition that 
one of the important ideas in the book is that the field of suffering is the field of healing. And this is something that comes directly out of spiritual teachings, primarily from Buddhism and Christianity, the traditions I'm most familiar with. So there are elements and invitations to utilize the experience of caregiving to further your one's growth. Soul is a tricky word, but to uh, further one's growth on every level of, of one's being. Now, do, do the uh, you, you talk about spiritual disciplines in the book. Does, do they vary from religion to religion? The various forms of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Confucianism? Well, we jump there into a a huge debate, which is sometimes, uh, as you might imagine, quite uh, acrimonious. Mm -hmm. But let's just make a broad sweep and say that in Eastern traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Chen Buddhism in uh, China, Taoism uh, in China, meditation, posture, straightening the spine, regulating breathing, being anchored on the earth. These are central practices. You got all kinds of teachings, many different theologies, philosophies, mm, teaching, you know, myths. But as a core practice, this seems to run uh, across in many ways. Now, in Western tradition, do we find that the place to look, and this is more controversial, is in forms of prayer. And certainly there were forms of prayer, uh, the Desert Fathers and preserved to some degree in uh, Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox churches that emphasize contemplative prayer, uh, to some degree breathing exercises, to some degree uh, repeating prayer words. Uh, but the big debate is whether the differences count more. You know, if you use a prayer shawl and you're kind of rocking gently back and forth with phylacteries um, on your hands and your forehead, is that the same prayer as kneeling in the Catholic church and saying the different prayers? Is it the same prayer as turning uh, towards Mecca uh, five times a day? Most people would say not. But part of the way that the term spirituality has come to be used in contemporary usage is to try to step away from those differences that are so obvious and to suggest that it is important for us as human beings to recognize that we are connected to larger patterns, connected to nature in larger ways, which we are seeing with the climate emergency and our lack of understanding of connection there connection with uh, the universe in a variety of ways. And throughout human history, as, as far as we're aware, these rituals and teachings to connect with something larger have been important. And so the language of spirituality uh, has developed as a way of pointing to that 
and hopefully a way that people from different religious traditions and practices might be able to come together and say, okay, this is different, we pray differently, but yes, we sit in a larger context that is important for understanding ourselves and for understanding healing. But what about non-believers, agnostics and atheists? Are you suggesting that they're less likely to be empathetic? Uh, no, you know, so here's what I think, part of what I think about this. The human, human physiology, let's just say it's common across the board, right? If you straighten your spine, sit with your feet planted on the floor and breathe deeply, you come into a centered place. It doesn't matter if you're atheist, if you are Southern Baptist, Catholic, uh, devotee of Shiva, uh, you know, Lao Tzu, Confucius. So I think that there are some core elements that are built into human physiology or into what, uh, you know, Carl Jung spoke of as archetypes. And our disagreements about philosophy, am I an atheist, am I not, am, uh, do I go with this school of Christianity, this school of Christianity, uh, do I convert to uh, Islam? Do I uh, go with Mahayana Buddhists or Theravada Buddhists? The, the range of opinion and discussion and discourse is enormous. But when we come down to the gritty work, bodily work of being present to a sick person, I think it brings us all, it, sorry, it has a potential to bring us into a place where we have a shared humanity that is based on our perception of brokenness and healing and what you mentioned a while back, our innate desire to heal, which is not dependent on religion. In fact, I would say religion arises out mm -hmm. of these innate tendencies and these uh, physiological uh, commonalities that's probably not a popular view in religious traditions but but this is this is something i've observed in the process of watching people do this work david Does that answer your question? i was going to say david shank is my guest on today's leonard lopate at large his latest book into the field of suffering finding the other side of burnout published by oxford university press this is wbai new york 99.5 FM and streaming live, WBAI.org. So how can we recognize the early signs of depletion and burnouts? And is stress unavoidable when we're caring for someone who is ill or even just needy? Stress is definitely unavoidable. There are many different kinds and this is part of what makes it difficult, and we're often surprised. It runs out, does it arise out of frustration that often occurs when we're trying to help but don't see any immediate results? Definitely. But it also, I think, can start before that. So let's say you have become a caregiver for a person uh, in your home, uh, a partner, uh, a sibling, or a parent. 
the hospice people come in and they say, now you need to give this medicine, this medicine at this time and check and see if the diaper needs changing. And, uh, you know, if you're going to change the diaper, here's what you do. Here's how you change the uh, sheet in the bed. You know, you turn them on their side and you roll it up and you, so there's all this new information right away. And you have this enormous desire to help this person you're caring for. And at the same time, it's like you're getting a mass cramming for an exam. Then you begin to try to find a rhythm. Sometimes that's hard to do. Some people are good patients. Some people are not very good patients. Uh, some people are automatically skilled caregivers. Some are not. And so then there's the stress of, are we going to be able to work together, uh, the sick person and the caregiver? But then, yes, the frustration. I'm doing all the things that they told me to. She's not getting better. I'm doing the things that are supposed to make her comfortable. I'm arranging the pillows. I'm taking care of the bathing. I've gotten the foods that uh, he asked me to get. Uh, and they're still uncomfortable. They're not happy with you. They're frustrated. And this is hard. And it also is sometimes hard because it hits old wounds. You know, your father is saying to you, you know, David, you've always been like this. I, I'm not surprised that you can't uh, get my meals right. You've always, you've always been a slob. And so there, there's that frustration if you're trying to do it right but it also can hit what i call hot buttons hmm. old wounds that are there from from way back and you know when so we're how sick, do you work with them how does a care provider work with the hot buttons the first thing to do you know is identify them why is it that i'm always immediately reactive and immediately upset when my dad says so and so and then to take some time to go back in history. You know, we have wounding that happens uh, in what I call contemporary time. You know, you had a bad day getting to the studio. There was this frustration and an argument in the office. That's one layer. And then there's another layer, a historical layer of things that happened maybe a month ago or two months ago. But then there's the, what I call the archaic layer. And this is what you know, your father, your mother said to you when you were eight years old or 10 years old, and you've never forgotten it, it lives on in your body. And so I think trying to remember, trying to tease that out, and then see the person in front of you and look at them in their struggle and see if it doesn't dissolve. See if it doesn't dissolve. The other thing is to work on some of the exercises, the breathing exercises and the centering exercises, because you don't want to let the hot button rule for very long. It's a useful piece of information, but uh, that kind of reactivity and anger is not going to serve you well or, or your patient well. So pay attention, try to breathe and get centered. And then give that part of you, you know, look at it as a part of you that hasn't had a chance to speak. All it can do is scream when it gets touched. But if you give it a chance to say, you remember back when, you know, we were putting the trains together and dad said so and so and so and so. 
And then you look at dad lying there in the bed, really himself a two-year-old in need of care. Often these things will disperse. Are these, yeah, are these the uh, analytical frameworks and awareness skills that you provide a set of? Uh, do they have yeah. a, a potential to transform the work of healers and caregivers? I think they definitely do. Part of it is we don't often recognize how central the body is. Now, that sounds stupid because caregiving involves moving people around, lifting them, and the illness is bodily. But I think what, as caregivers, we don't realize is our bodies are our healing presence. They are our moral presence. They are how we receive most of the information that we need about the person in front of us and how to uh, work with them. And so paying attention to and cultivating the body and offering it healing over and over again is so important. We pay attention to emotional things for caregivers, or we say, you know, be sure to run and keep up with your exercise program. But what I'm talking about with these exercises is being aware at the moment that the caregiving is going on and trying to adjust to that. So, for example, uh, one of the things that we talk about is an exercise I learned from my teacher, Brew Joy. He called it pause, center, shift. So your hot buttons get pushed, uh, you're reactive. Step back for a moment. It doesn't have to be long. It can be 30 seconds. It can be 10 seconds. But just disengage. Look at what's going on. Take a deep breath. Now, I was taught by a psychologist friend of mine, the best way to do this is to tell people to breathe out first. You huh. Breathe out, and then you have an automatic in-breath. Sometimes if you're really upset, it's hard to start with the in-breath. So you pause, you take a couple of belly, deep belly breaths. I encourage people if they're standing up, sitting down, whatever, to get their feet flat on the floor straighten their spine as much as they can. And then the shift part is, okay, that's the reactive part of me, that's the upset part, but I know there's a part over here that knows how to, let's say you're a doctor, do this suture, a nurse, do this um, procedure with uh, uh, setting up the IV bags. Shift out of your emotional self into your professional self. Alas, we have run out of time. Oh, okay. But I wanted, I hope that we covered most of what you wanted to talk about. We certainly have. Great questions. And uh, I've been talking with David Schenk. His latest book, Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout, from Oxford University Press. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leonard. Great conversation. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Keziah Glow, our executive producer, and to Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has now far surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, 
My email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI because we are going through a really rough time. We talked about the impact of the COVID pandemic on healthcare. Well, it's had a terrible impact on radio as well. And right now we are in something of a financial crisis. So we're asking all of our listeners of the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number to WBAI.org. And, uh, We really need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Into the Field of Suffering, Finding the Other Side of Burnout by David Schenck. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5, 10 15 20 $25 a month, whatever you're comfortable with, for as long as you'd like to do that. Uh, it allows us to plan for the future, and we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag and uh, to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. So if you Tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large. Why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org. Let's give the number to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend.